0: This is John Stepling. this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast 11, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I'm in Norway here, and I'm speaking with Guy Zimmerman again in Los Angeles. Uh, Hi, Guy. John, hey, how's it going? Uh, So you guys had an earthquake last night, a small one.
1: Yeah, 3.7, I think. I just looked it up.
0: Well, yeah, no worse question. It was
1: close, you know, it was close. It was um I think it was it was like in the I think it was in the West Valley. No, oh. wait. It was in uh yeah, it was like right in LA. The epicenter was like right in LA.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, kind of like uh over by the airport by LAX. It's all getting so biblical, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. What's next? Oh my god.
0: Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, talk, I, talk I, you know, it's it's virtually impossible. I mean, I really do want to start this, talking about those films, but it really is virtually impossible to not begin every conversation with something ab- about the, the Corona um, event, you know, and, and, and I'm, I, my takeaway this week is that I am extraordinarily stunned, at the visibility of Bill Gates in all of this. Um, and then stunned again when I actually listened to him um, because he really strikes me as delusional. You know, I mean, I he says things and you think, what, who are you talking to? I mean, telling people, yeah, everybody, you have no choice. You have to, you know, be vaccinated and do this and do, I mean, he's not, He's not the pharaoh, you know. Right. It's it's, it's very strange, but um, yeah,
1: I you know I know, and I, I haven't I have to confess I haven't I haven't heard any of what Gates has to say, and I just kind of tune him out, you know. But I also, you know, there's so many there's so much villainy afoot, you know that, <laughs> you know, when I hear this, I'm like I undergo a kind of there's a kind of mental weird scaling effect in my head because I think about Bill Gates is an evil motherfucker, but what do I then do with Robert Mercer or the Koch brothers or, you know, good good God, you know, Trump or any of the other oil oligarchs around the world, MBS, the butcher of Riyadh, you know, Mr. Bonesaw, you know, like, what do I do with that guy?
0: Yeah. I don't know. No. no well but i think i think it's it's frightening it's it's it the whole thing the quarantine and 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 um the subsequent kind of media discourse that has taken place around it both in mainstream news and and in social media has been has been uh, it, it illustrates something about the way the public responds to authority, how they respond to the state, how they, how they respond well, it's, to it's It's so true. Yeah,
1: it's, I mean, this is something you were asking me about teaching on Zoom and how odd it is. This is one of the things that has just like, cause what, I, what I've done is sort of interesting with these classes and most of these students are second generation Latino uh, immigrants, like a very vulnerable population in a lot of ways. And also a kind of a traditional population, you know, they come from a very uh, sort of traditional background, most of them, not all of them. And, but they're also just, you know, American kids really, you know, and they, I realized, cause I have them focus on social media as a way of bringing down, you know, bringing sort of critical theory concepts down to earth cause it's so much about some of that stuff like representation, yeah. self-representation, power. right. right. And, and I find and I've, I've suddenly just it's been a revelation because i I realized that what what the what what social media has done to an entire generation is that you know they are all te- already terrorized you know they're terrorized oh, wow. by the fear you know like sort of the sh- just human every, everyday average human shame structures that uh, get really activated by social media and they're just it, it's just it's amazing what we've done to, a, to an entire generation of
0: people. Yeah, I think that's a pretty um, cogent and really perceptive comment. Have you ever read Jonathan Beller's um, Cinematic Mode of Production?
1: No, I need to read it because I know you guys have been talking about Jonathan yeah, Beller and I just have been I, too busy with projects.
0: I'm writing a new blog post and I'm using a lot of it and it's kind of about instrumental reason, but then I go off on Beller and I was reading him again. You know, and, and he's talking about that, um, and it's, you know, the attention economy and, and the coercion and uh, the, the, the way in which um, subjectivity has, has, has been interrupted, shattered by, um, you know, digital technology, social media, the internet in general. Uh, and and he has a whole chapter on on Lacan and, and it's you know it's very interesting and he, and he quotes obviously Guy Debord a lot. Debord was <laughs> Debord sounds better and better with each passing year. That's all. Well, I it's
1: it's true, you know, and it's it's um yeah, I know what you exactly what you mean about about Debord and and sort of the whole Situationist uh, letterist movement you know and some of some of the other figures in that like constant and you know the idea of i always i always feel like um in los angeles you you there's a strange kind of you know you know constant sort of uh figure of homo ludens you know the mm-hmm. the, the you know play the the man man who plays you know the <laughs> the um that sort of playfulness of human beings that uh, kind of gets stamped out by the uh, urgency of production and and that whole right. Um, mechanism, right? And that, you know, one of the things that I love about LA having moved here from New York was just that in the, in the sort of crevices, you could find, you know, people who were completely devoted to play. <laughs> you know,
0: it was like, yeah. You know, it's very interesting, really interesting because um Having young children now at my advanced age is a very different experience than than having them you know when I had lex and I was i think thirty one then um so i have been watching the twins who were now three and a half and and the younger one who was like a year um and and watching them play yeah and and they never the twins never I mean just about literally never play with toys. They play with sticks and rocks and empty boxes and um, tape measures they love tape measures um, and and I've said this before on the podcast I mean they 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 pretend to be animals um, and they'll have this stick that's actually a, a kind of tape measure it's a stick measure that you unfold in segments if you need it to get longer they yeah. love this right yeah. and one day they stick it they hold it up to their nose and they're an elephant yeah and then the next day they're fishing with it and the next day it's a sword and then the next hour um it is something else and it's just a constant and that's that's what they enjoy and they're rearranging the house constantly with pillows and I can't keep up at all, and occasionally I'll say, what are, what are you doing? Oh, well, this is a house, and this is a cave, and we're this cartoon, we're, you know, in the forest, and we're the fox, and oh, okay. And it's, it's,
1: it's, it's so, it is so, it, I mean, because I know exactly watching my daughter in the same mode, and it's so theatrical, it is yeah. so, Yeah, like I'm learning about the world through this mimetic capacity where I can become all these different things, inanimate things. You know, it's this um, and and it's very interesting what happens when language arrives on the scene. This is very Lacanian, you know, there's there's a sense of, well, you know, there's suddenly there's this social salience where you can see your child suddenly is has access to all this sort of social benefit of language being able to articulate what they need and communicate and everything but something has gone away there's an immediacy has gone away and you can feel it go away and right. it's quite you know it's quite alarming in a certain way and you know from a Lacanian point of view that you know that arrival that arrival of the symbolic is where you know, the self forms. And I think, uh, you know, for me, I'm always, you know, think about Lacan and, and the way that Deleuze and Guattari kind of complained about Lacan or actually were actively kind of resisting Lacan is that Lacan, like Freud, views this kind of dynamic as inevitable. Whereas, you know, what I like, one of the things I like about Deleuze and Guattari is they say, no, it's not inevitable. It's a choice. It's a socially constructed choice. It's, it is control that we surrender to this alienation in the form of the linguistic and the symbolic. It's not inevitable, you know, and I don't know if they're correct, but it's at least to me less pessimistic, you know.
0: Yeah, it's one one interesting thing is the twins and the twins are, I mean, that's a whole other discussion because they're identical twins, right? Right. And and that's just freaky, I have to say, it's just freaky. And I mix them up all the time, constantly. Um, and it's interesting because their mother does not mix them up. Um, but uh, they they don't watch very much television, but they'll sometimes watch different cartoons, Norwegian things, Hockey Pocky Skogen, their favorite, which is actually a pretty wonderful sort of kids mini opera that was, that was originally made in the 50s, but, um, but, but they get extraordinarily invested in the story. And if the caterpillar is threatened, I mean, they'll cry. They're really, to the point where I have to fast forward to the place where everything's okay. <laughs> um and say no you see actually doesn't get stepped on man it's okay you know um but but that the mamies and they're just at their they you know they they speak but not you know not extensively they're still learning how to talk and they're from a bilingual household so there's all of this stuff and that's a whole other thing because they speak english to me and they speak Norwegian to their mom, um, which is also extraordinarily freaky, um, because nobody has, you know, I speak English to them, so they understand that. But anyway, that's mimesis, right? That's, That's that mimetic thing. It's like they engage with the narrative, um, they imitate what they see. they invest emotional the contours of their emotion are invested in everything from rocks to the television show to their parents to their brother you know um and and yeah it's there is something um there is something tragic about knowing at some point that i'm going to watch that all go away you know it's very
1: it's very interesting, right because what we're really talking about, I think is the experience of like the infants especially, it, you can just watch them. One of the things that's so fascinating is that they they are not separate from what they experience in any way. Right. It's right. they there is a uh, there is a continuity in their experience. It, it the world is not separate from them in the way that it is that we learn that it is right and yep and it's. It, to me, what's interesting is that that separation, and this is sort of affect theory, you know, which I find Sylvan Tompkins, uh, you know, his affect theory, which has been misused a lot, but is interesting, which is that, you know, the fundamental human affect, and there are only nine of them, I think, in his view, and ev- all experiences sort of mediated through one of these basic affects, which are pre, you know, prior to emotion. And the, the primary one is interest excitement and then the, the next major one is shame. And for him, wow. shame shame affect, he always wondered, why do we have shame affect? And it's about, it's about the, the, the suffering that comes from separation so that you are motivated to reconnect to interest excitement, which is essentially a form of joy. And then, um, but you can sort of, if it's just an interesting way to think about it, that our sense of self is composed of shame affect really
0: yeah our sense no, of our
1: sense. so we're we're sort of pre alienated and yeah, capitalist
0: and production for example just seizes absolutely. on that pre alienated structure right this is yeah and that is ties into you know a lot of well adorno and horkheimer but others as well in the theory of instrumental reason right yeah absolutely so, and with science and and um and yeah it's all a form of that it's all shame effect really yeah and, and it's that, that 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 fear of the unknown that fear drives a desire to sort of pre-conceptualize the world the actual yes conceptualize it ahead of time in a sense with abstractions and that that allows for um, you know, classification and predictability. Yes. Right? Because, yes. and that's science in a sense is, Absolutely. is, is based on predictability, but running alongside that, the regressive side of it, perhaps, or at least partly, is the is repetition. Yes. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, there's nothing wrong with, you know science with with instrumental thinking with classification with with you know conceptual categorization of experience of the sensual except when and the question is how and why this happened exactly except when that description true sort of veers into domination yeah I, I i'm not sure i mean i actually would,
1: you know, I'm not sure that, you know, for me, there's a distinction, and it's a, this is where things get very funky because, you know, in some ways, you could say language itself is rooted in separation. You know, this is this is one of the things that I like about Agamben, for example. That, you know, he says, oh, you know, the the fundamental lie is when we stake our identity in language, and this is in a sense what Lacan is saying. But again, he's saying it's inevitable. So then you're, you're in this weird place where you're saying, well, yeah, so there's a difference between knowledge and like knowing, and that, um, or understanding, and you get into that sort of knowing and knowledge versus wisdom, and what's the difference between the two, and how do you conceptualize the, the pre linguistic? You know, how do you how do you talk about that sort of connective knowing that happens, it's almost like intuition, you know, uh, where you just know if something is true. And it's, um, rather than having to kind of cogitate about it in the mode of the symbolic. And I, and I, um, you know, I don't know, it's it, it sort of, um, you know, when I, I always think about poets, and, and this is very, uh, you know, the, what poets are doing in a sense, it's about redeeming language, you know, by uniting that separation with a deeper kind of connection underneath the word, you know, and that there's something, there's a correlate to what, to the kind of theater that you and I are drawn to. And probably even the kind of cinema that you and I are drawn to, where there's a kind of, um, there's a a real, there's a, a drawing people back to that underlying connection through media that is about separation.
0: Right. And see, I think, no, that's, it's very interesting. And, and one of the problems I have with, um, the Frankfurt school critique of instrumental reason, because I think it's, it's essential reading. And I think their critique is very good at, at, um, sort of, Explaining the rise of fascism and and how that works and um, whether one agrees with the Freudian anthropology or not it's it's extraordinarily insightful work, but one of the problems I have is that at a certain point they become deterministic and and um, Bellard does this too he's like a techno determinist um and and the counter to that is indeed poetry or, or writing that is poetic, theater that is poetic, or any art form. Because I was thinking today, like, I'm talking about, because Beller talks a lot about photography, and he has extraordinarily interesting takes, and his second book, The Message is Murder, is very much about photography. But I was thinking, why is it, what is it, um, you know, in great photographers, um, Shugimoto, or or Versailles, or one of the contemporaries, like um, Ayahuasca van der Molen, or, or Lewis Baltz, who's now dead, sadly. But what is it that, I mean, I can look at those pictures and tell you there is a difference between what he is seeing, what Louis Baltz sees when he looks at, at this house, this industrial park in Irvine, and what anybody else would when they go and photograph it, but there is no way for me to explain to you what that is. I just can't. Yeah, There's well, no and it's
1: it, 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 right. It's a it it is a quality of attention that undermines, you know the, you know the image. It, I mean, it's very interesting because you know, un, well, that that doesn't undermine the image, but that that uh, sort of reconciles the image with um, makes makes the in, it makes the image adequate to experience in some way and i i uh, you know i'm instantly and this is something i've never really been able to fathom to be quite frank but you know the the distinction in in deleuze's cinema books about the time image and the space image and how because you and i were going to talk about certain directors Right. Antonioni and Fassbender who kind of do this strange idiosyncratic move within this this technology, this, you know, uh, representational technology of cinema and are able to kind of tap something similar to what you mentioned with Baltz, which is, um, a, you know, a, a, an adequation, you know, making cinema adequate to experience in some very uncanny and poetic way. And Deleuze links it to our experience of duration. It's a very Bergson kind of move. But um, anyway, John, I'm just tossing. No, but that out. that's
0: but that's really interesting. I mean, there's no reason no reason to rush over these things. Um, but it's interesting because I know Lacan made a comment at some point about that when you look at a photograph, you you are always aware that something isn't there, something is either left or something just isn't there. And I'm paraphrasing him, but but that speaks to some of this in a sense. Absolutely, um, and and it's and it speaks to that that split in ourselves, in the self, the absolute misrecognition and, and sense of and all art. It seems to me we could we could talk about cinema and theater, theater most acutely. I mean, because theater embodies this stuff in the most condensed distilled way but you can look at photography you can look at film you can look at poetry yeah i mean when you say
1: theater john you're talking about a very specific genealogy of theater yeah well linked to beckett and you know i mean and most people when they think of theater think of something totally different
0: (laughs) yeah good point um but 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 the um yeah, theater. I just yeah. I, I just I was just thinking to of Cantor your... to, because I was thinking of Cantor today, Kreko yeah. and Cantor, and I, yeah. it's funny. But I really wasn't planning on talking about this, but I was thinking of Crico, um, uh the dead class, um, because I had been playing with my kids, and I had been playing with the youngest one, Knut, yeah. and um, and I thought what he's doing, his what he's starting to imitate. I mean, he's—it's really weird. But what went through my head was, he's a lot like Cantor, walking around directing the actors on stage during the play.
1: Yeah, and that's yeah, a, I know exactly what you mean. Eliza, Eliza, my daughter Eliza, and I used to—I mean, we had this elaborate game involved with all of her different stuffed animals and the the sort of myth <laughs> of Babar, and you know—and we would just, you know, we would enact this, and all you know. Babar's Celeste gives birth to a baby elephant who's Eliza but Eliza's also Celeste and she's also (laughs) Babar and then she's all of the different you know personages who come to pay homage to the new elephant baby and I mean and it was just it was the most delightful thing and it was pure play yeah her imaginative engagement with uh you know the, the the sensory world you know and um so I know exactly what you mean it's just inherently theatrical and and i and i think that it's you know it's that unalienated state of being that we all remember
0: on some level yeah and that's and, um yeah. yeah that's a really interesting childhood amnesia is another topic we could spend you know hours yeah and on it's
1: after. always trauma right it's always it's it's interrupted by trauma and of course you know the thing about the human the human fuckery is that you know we have these huge brains that are so sensitive and we're born premature because otherwise we couldn't emerge and then we're dependent for two years or a year and a half whatever and inevitably there's the problem of the unresponsive other mm-hmm. and we're we are traumatized by terror because we can't set, we, we're not we're not autonomous right and so and it's that terror, I think, that um, that's the seed of the of, of the self, in a way. That's our sense of being separate. And but absolutely not workable. Yeah. And it's absolutely. just, you know, and it's just like, it's a major, at this point, when you, because I was thinking back about, you know, the social media, this just recognition that this generation of kids are just fucking, they're just terrorized by social media. Absolutely. Just by how any one of them could fuck up and say something and suddenly be one of the ones who is being cyber bullied or canceled or ridiculed. And they see this happen to somebody that they that they care about and they think, well, I could intervene, but then it might be me.
0: And
1: you can just right. see they're, they're completely... No, and I mean, I
0: see I see grown adults in their 40s terrorized on social media and, and fall apart and close their account and then come back sheepishly six months later because... Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's and it's and
1: it's it is essentially what we're talking about. It is, it is the the self structure as a trauma structure. It is a structure of trauma, and so of course, and this is very consistent with the Frankfurt School. Of course, you know, it goes and this you know it 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 rolls forward and produces its own extinction scenario. You know, where which is sort of what we're in. You know, which well, is like, can, yeah. can the species outrun its own aggression and its own, you know, sort of traumatic uh reactivity? Yeah. You know, well, there
0: it... is there is there is a truth in whether it's completely correct or not, I'm not sure, but there is a truth in in the Odyssey chapter of Dialectic of Enlightenment, which apparently Adorno was responsible for almost completely. Um with Odysseus um in a sense uh, it's like an introversion of the sacrificial mechanism he sacrifices his inner nature to um overcome or or outsmart the law of equivalency which is you know exchange value yes yes and um and so he's the first bourgeois <laughs> man and that <laughs> but within that Sacrifice of inner self is you know the germ of of all later pathologies and and um toxicity psychic toxicity and terror uh and 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 fascism and that that you know i mean Adorno saw this as kind of inevitable on in some way, and I'm not sure if it is, but God these days it certainly feels like it um but see, I think intersecting that at some point, which none of these guys lived long enough to see, is what we're talking about, the, the, the world of social media, the internet, digital technology, the fact that there is such an extraordinary acceleration um, of time for everything. Uh, and, and do you know uh, Manfredo Tarfuri? T-A-F-U-R-I? Yeah, you know, I know the name, and
1: it's one of those, I don't, I don't, I haven't read any, but yeah, he I, didn't uh,
0: write, he didn't write very much, but you should read his book. He was, you know, an architect, sort of Marxist architect, architectural critic, um, and he's very, very amazingly insightful, and one of the things he talks about is the acceleration of time, and its effect on on architecture vis-a-vis capital and and anyway um i digress uh but yeah i i think that that this is the this is the challenge in one way um because that that shattered subjectivity that discontinuity to the self that seems to have been intensified with with these technological advances certainly with with cyberspace and stuff um have have created now whatever it is the third generation of um like you just described terrorized kids but also with a kind of not all of them but many with a kind of generalized autism in in effect um, and that's the kind of misused and overused term these days, but DeBoer uses it, which is why I... Well, it's very it's very strange, you know,
1: it's very, um, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's very strange because uh, there are also these emergent phenomenon of this kind of rampant, I mean, because it's true right it's 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 this generalized self repression and alienation but it's also this kind of un, heretofore unheard of connectivity and it's mm. it, you know it's unclear exactly how this goes but you know it's part of why you know i applaud what you're doing with these podcasts and what everybody else is is doing to explore this weird new world and I don't know, um, you know, way, you know, one res- one has to restrain any kind of optimism, but yeah, it's bizarre. Like if you, you know, it's it it, it it does feel to me in a certain way, inevitable that we would confront all of this and be forced to confront all of this on the level of like, what our neurotransmitters are doing. You know, the the whole like you know, the attentional, the attentional economy becomes the dopamine economy, you know, the, yeah, the way that yeah. the addictive quality of connectivity and what it does internally and how, um, you know, these essentially primate uh, dopamine release structures are now um, seized by the apparatus of the state or of the socius, right? And yeah. we're all suddenly in the grip of this big machine that is yeah. manipulating our, neuro, our, our, our neuronal uh, reactivities to things. I mean, it's really absolutely extraordinary. And, and but what, what you see in response to that is a kind of a resistance, you know, a sense sure. of like, okay, we have to get control of this at the level of neuron and synapse so that we're not manipulated.
0: Well, it's what why the mean? corona event um, and the quarantine looms as so interesting, because you have this hyper alienated, hyper isolated society, um, you know, that has been indoctrinated to to overvalue to a pathological degree the idea of individuality and 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 you know the the autonomous self that isn't and um and here you have a quarantine um where a lot of people i know a lot um especially in places like los angeles and new york a lot of people are not doing anything very different than they did before the quarantine <laughs> but they're suffering now yeah you know and and that raises a a whole lot of questions about this you know theatrical role of yourself that that, that people play and, and it's um, yeah it's mysterious at this point for me, I have to admit but um, but you were just you were just mentioning the, the, the sort of resistance and, and working within this medium and we're all the people in aesthetic resistance and a few others that I've talked to um, are, are writing these two character, Short pieces, radio plays, in essence uh, and i 've been meditating on on the one i 'm writing because I find I am faced with different i don 't want to use the word challenges, but you know different set of of um, i don 't know contingencies or something than I would be if I were going into a theater. And probably even if I were doing it on conventional radio, I'm thinking, how does one write for, um, for a podcast? How does one write theater for a podcast, what we think of as theater? How do we poeticize the podcast? How do we escape yeah. the podcastness of the whole thing? It's very
1: strange, you know, uh, it's a, it's an interesting challenge. I know exactly what you mean. But, you know, um, I mean, I think it's, I think, you know, the remarkable thing is, and again, this is where, this is where I find, you know, this split between, you know, the Lacan-Freud and the, and the sort of Deleuze-Young kind of view is, um you know, there's the suggestion that in these podcasts, of course, that you could, you, there's no reason, you know, like, you know, the, the reason you and I are engaged in sort of um, producing and and admiring and, and supporting and cultivating the poetic is because the message that the poet, that, that, a, that a line of poetry carries with it is, we can go there right now. Right now, we can pierce through all of this alienated crapola, and we can go to that place of non, of the non-separate and of, you know, that fundamental, uh, you know, that underlying non-separate place, which I think is a place, you know, it's, it's, it's joyful and playful, right?
0: Well, I, I think it is, but I, think, I do think it is, um... But I think that that we are looking at, and this goes back to Beller a little bit because he has this this idea of the unconscious of the unconscious um that is that is linked with you know electronic media and movies and that we dream in in film strips and things like that. Um, and that and that our daydreams are almost anticipating, semi prophetic um of of prophetic in terms of future technologies but but the point is that that um i think i think there is a surplus unconscious that is very dark and traumatized and um and terrorized and and all the adjectives you can think of Death, infected, morbid, for sure. Uh, that for sure. comes along with this. That, and I think that's what I feel I'm. I'm looking at when I when I've as I've started to write this. This well, piece. it's
1: very you know, John. It's very you know,
0: it, it, it's very
1: Beckettian. I mean, when I the first thing that comes to mind when I think of because when I say that this underlying this poetic impulse is joyful and playful. That doesn't mean, you know, I mean, to me, that's the effect of watching tragic drama, in fact. Sure, sure. Yeah. And it's, it's not like a recommendation for like, Ooh, you know, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, like Beckett, when I think of his late, uh, his late theater pieces that were just sort of utterances, you know, I think those are what point toward podcast drama, honestly. Yeah, I mean, no, Sure you know it's sure. you I think just...
0: that's really astute. Did you ever see his the 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 short television pieces he did? Yeah, with with uh, Buster Keaton,
1: do you mean? Well, or um...
0: after that he did a series for German television. I don't think I and saw they're, that. No. They're like oh they're amazing and I don't know why they're not shown more. They're mostly silent. In fact, maybe they're all silent. I'm not sure. Um but you know, they're like 6 mi- <laughs> They're black and white and there's an old man in, in profile sitting and he sits for six minutes in absolute stillness and then a hand enters the frame um, across, sort of diagonally from where he's been looking and that's it, the end. <laughs>
1: you know, I mean, it, what's interesting about, do you know that Beckett at one point as a young man wrote to Eisenstein Wanting no. him to be his assistant. Do you know that? No. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, it's it's similar to what, you know, this 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 insight about Joyce that, you know, at one point James Joyce had gotten all involved in this idea of starting a chain of movie theaters in Dublin. <laughs> 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 it's like you see these, you know, the crazy sort of uh, Ideas that artists get in order to kind well, of well,
0: I but I think you know it's like Wittgenstein used to go to the movies, any movie apparently, as long as he could sit in the front row, you know, um, <laughs> and and would just sit there and and zone out. And I get it. I mean, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um I'm to check something. out
1: those, those Beckett. German TV things, I want to check them out. Oh,
0: yeah, you have to. They're, but they, they, I mean, the reason I
1: thought of that is that it's, it sounds like a, a crazy kind of extended moment out of Eisenstein, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's. they had it, oddly enough, I saw it at um, Mocha, I think. They had it in a little theater and you could just walk, it was on a constant loop, you know, all day long. Right. And you could wander in and out and watch I mean, the total number I don't know how many minutes, not that many. Um, but, but they were remarkable. And if you sat there like I did for, for quite a while, um, so that you could see them all four or five times, um, you started to sense something about what because these were very late in his life, you know, that something about where you know, his vision was headed. Um, and, and that he was confronting this idea of silence and... Well, uh, it, it reminds me actually of
1: um, a piece that I heard in this Zoom workshop the other night, Wes's workshop, Wes Walker's workshop. And and Daniel Sullivan, who you know, yeah. read a piece or had a piece read that was, I thought just quite extraordinary and so, in a sense, so Beckettian, and it felt like it just belonged in that medium. I mean, and it's just a kind of interesting uh, exploration yeah. that I think a lot of people are doing. And it's, it's one of the things that, again, brings me back to what is sort of not exactly uh, optimistic, but um, open about this sort of Deleuze Guattari kind of view of this rather than the Lacanian, where, you know, in Lacan, the, the symbolic is going to get you. There's just no way around it. And once, and it's there's it no freeing yourself from the symbolic,
0: and I'm just not so sure that that's actually true. No, I don't. I don't think it is, and that's what I, I I kind of reject all the deterministic thinking on these lines. And I mean, I understand, in a sense, where it came from. I understand with with Adorno and Horkheimer. Mean, these were traumatized men, you know, that had that had fled Germany under um, escaping the the Nazis and and Benjamin committed suicide on the Spanish border, escaping the Nazis, or not, in his case, and and um, he actually could have. Is the kind of horrible irony is that, but anyway, yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know that yeah. know the story, but but there is um, so I understand that that they were preoccupied with with a certain aspect of of this and what. The mechanisms by which instrumental thinking reasoning came to subsume the 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 moralistic or any other form of reason, and that means came to eclipse ends and and all of the rest of it um, but but I think that in a sense, they also stigmatize um, it's what they're calling instrumental thought in a way that is not quite precise enough because you know, we're you're not asking to return to you know 14th century inquisition either, right? It's like we don't want church dogma, and and we, you know, there certainly were good things about the Enlightenment, they were mostly good things about the Enlightenment, it's just that the seeds of something diabolical and really malevolent and a distillation of the barbarism of earlier the seeds of that were carried along with this notion of progress and 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 that's why i think that 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 the writing one does now for if it's a podcast but maybe even in that there's something of, of a smallness that is that is required I don't know how else to put it and I said that when I was in LA that it's like less you know everything is less you have to you have to avoid um you have to avoid it's almost a process of of not shooting yourself in the foot artistically speaking um than it is anything else because it doesn't feel as if what's required is epic narrative and grand set of ideas expressed representationally or anything of the sort. It's more like a quiet, you know, minimalist drip, drip, drip of unadulterated um, art, you know, of, of, of mimesis. And, and that to do that, you, you have to be very careful and take an enormous amount of time and listen very deeply to what you yourself are writing. And that's, that's very difficult shit because we live in a society, as you pointed out, um, that shames and stigmatizes and lynches, cyber lynchings go on daily. There's enormous sadism and violence, it seems to me, on, on the internet and and the quarantine. I mean, how, you know, how long did it take for the quarantine to get to leg monitors and, and um, you know, house arrest where they go in and remove children because they're infected? Um, all of this stuff. I mean, it didn't take but a few weeks to go from, okay, let's take care of the elderly and we don't want this virus to get, wear your mask, wash your hands, and now it's like police are out harassing people and 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 um, there's a, you know, a huge um, industry cottage industry growing up in the making of like you know designer face masks, and I made a joke about that in like day three, and the joke's on me um, be, because like Nike and New Balance and all these places are are making face masks um, but it, but it leapt so quickly to the most authoritarian responses. Um, and, and the most sadistic and fascistic. It just happened, like, in the blink of an eye. Um, yeah. And Because that's, that's just there. It's there well, just it's, below the surface all the time. Yeah. And it's this weird
1: thing, because, of course, the virus is about how non-separate we are from each other. I mean, you know, it doesn't observe, you know, the the identity differences that we stake ourselves on, right? It flows through a population, you know, and it's not, it's, it's like, I mean, in some ways, the, the you know, the, in some ways, this whole experience undermines some of the premises of uh, individualism, very much so. Of course, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's sort of interesting is that it, you know, it's, it's essentially, it, you know, the virus is a communist.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you're seeing, um, yeah, you're seeing, uh, of, of weird pockets of, of clarity in people I hadn't expected to be, to have that response that, that are, and that are grasping that, that the Corona story is an allegory, you know, um, That's an it, may, it may be two allegories in fact, but, yeah. um, um, and And because it just seems hard to avoid seeing that recognizing that and right, I mean, and the other thing is that i
1: mean one of the one of the very very minor and I know we're probably close to the end of the time, but the, that's the um you know it, it is remarkable how plastic the social milieu has proven to be i mean in the sense that if you think about Margaret Thatcher and there is no alternative, you know, that kind of view of, um, there's you no indeed, other way you to have be. no choice. Yeah. There's no other way for us to be than, you know, savage capitalists who, um, you know, spread misery and death. Right. There's no yeah. other way that we could possibly be. And suddenly within the span of like a couple of weeks, we've revised some of the very basic parameters of, of our experience that had defined the last 30 40 50 years or whatever and mm-hmm. even just in in LA it's very apparent because the sky is blue the highways right. are empty although they're getting full again but you know the carbon footprint went way down and it sort of begs this question of like can we liberate ourselves from this sort of <laughs> uh, petrocarb you know you know this this oil uh,
0: well it's i think i, th- living, right? I think know? I think the corona story has also revealed in probably unintended ways um, uh, when I say intended I mean from the state's point of view they would you know their marketing fear and they're they're very happy to extend um, all social control and restrictions possible erosion of civil liberties surveillance they they're happy to do that but but there has been an unintended um I don't know a uh, sense of of oh and I don't um, the word has gone out of my head, but um that that the uh, the allegorical part is is re- is distinctly revealing of the of the sedimented class relations in this society that that it is Absolutely. a story of class struggle, if nothing else. And because yeah. it's just it's just unavoidable. You have <laughs> prisoners locked up, yeah. getting all of them getting infected. You have, you know, the sailors of <laughs> nuclear-powered submarines yes. all infected. You have the whole vast you know. underclass, you know, um, the most vulnerable to this. And these stories are not amenable to like, bourgeois um storytelling they, there there is no fit narrative that makes sense of this besides a very radical political one you know yeah um and and it's just it's just it's just amazing because um it, 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 the 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 sort of villainous people like Cuomo and Gates and Trump and these people who are fauci. I mean, the corruption is so extensive and so sort of frightening and in, in in its in the degree to which it exists, um, that I think it's very hard to miss for almost anybody. And so people are are in denial about the narrative and then they invent new narratives that are that are more fantasy-like than ever. Um, it's it's very interesting. Well, um, yeah, we, you know, we had meant to talk about Fassbinder. Yeah, we meant
1: to talk about something else, but maybe we'll do it again, so.
0: Yeah, but, you know, in a way, this is about Fassbinder and and, and, and Antonioni, and of course, we absolutely should do, do it again, because I think when we talk about that um, elusive, ineffable quality, when you sit and watch something, Antonioni is one of the great versions of of oh, that for sure. experience. For sure. Right. And and um, it was interesting. I, I was happy And Bresson for that matter. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and I was happy to see Beller mention Zabrisky Point in his book. I thought my God, nobody mentions that film anymore. Yeah. Um, because it was seen as such a failure and it's it's really an awfully interesting failure if it's a failure. And I suppose it is, but um, but yeah the it, i think i think of antonioni as as anticipating um lacan deleuze guattari in a sense um it, without any direct causal kind just within his mise en scene there is something that speaks to and there is in Bertolucci too, by the way, but he's more overtly political. In in Antonioni it's existential somehow. It's it's in La Ventura uh, it is that those empty wall spaces, you know. Yes. That, that are that are accusatory somehow and and yet not. I mean it's we'll have to do a whole podcast on this because I think that's that's worth talking about. Okay, well, listen, um, let's wrap this up. Um, Those of you who are writing pieces, guys, send them to me, because we have to organize the recording of them. And I hope on aesthetic resistance here on SoundCloud um, that there will be some of these dramatic, in quotation marks, um, parentheses, S-I-C, close parentheses. Dramatic pieces soon, and um, as always, thanks, Guy. It's, yeah, John. Uh, it's my pleasure to have you, and I always enjoy this. So, um, I'll be in touch, and uh, this will be up soon. And again, thanks to Jack Littman, who was um, the the Wonder Boy, um, the Wonderkin, uh, for for us at uh, what's aesthetic resistance? A R. I'll have to do something with that here at AR. All right, man. Uh, Avoid earthquakes and viruses, and I'll be in touch. All right, John. Take it easy. All right, man. Later.